Hello, everyone, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 64, the evolving biocompatibility landscape, staying ahead of regulatory requirements. My name is Stephen Bernanke. I'm marketing principal at RQM Plus, and I'll start today by sharing some quick info about RQM Plus, then I'll introduce today's panelists, and then hand it over to our moderator who will get the conversation started. So RQM Plus is the leading medtech service provider with the world's largest global team of regulatory quality experts. Building upon 40 years of regulatory expertise, we also provide comprehensive clinical trial, lab, and reimbursement services, reducing risk and supporting market access throughout the entire product lifecycle for medical devices, digital therapeutics, and diagnostics. And this, of course, is our interactive show, RQM Plus Live, uh, that gives you access to seasoned leaders and experts who answer your questions about industry topics and challenges. So we encourage you not to be shy today. You can ask questions by typing them into the questions area of the webinar interface and clicking submit. So without further delay, here are today's panelists. Uh, first up, we have our special guest, Dr. Joel Cohen, principal at the scientific consulting firm Gradient. Dr. Cohen is a board certified toxicologist with specialties in computational toxicology and human health risk assessment. Uh, at Gradient, his primary responsibilities include non-clinical safety assessments of medical device and pharmaceutical components, consumer product safety evaluation, and physiologically based pharmacokinetic modeling. I think I said that right, I'm surprised. So Joel, uh, we're especially thankful you're here with us today. Uh, thank you for contributing to today's conversation. Next up is Jay Cuddy. Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation at RQM Plus. Jay joined RQM Plus in February of 2021, coming from BSI, where he spent seven years in CE marking technical and clinical leadership roles uh, with specific expertise in cardiovascular product development. Jay has over 19 years of experience in R&D and medical devices, spanning new product development, biomechanics, biomaterials, regulatory affairs, and clinical evaluations. Third, we have Kevin Rowland, Director of R&D at RQM Plus. Kevin has been working in the laboratory for 13 years and has served as team leader for the GCMS and LCMS groups, as well as laboratory manager. His work is focused on interpretation of high resolution, accurate mass MS data for identification of non-target unknown compounds with a strong focus on analysis of extractables and leachables for medical devices. Next, we have Taryn Mead, who's director of biological evaluation consulting at Archem Plus. In her role, Taryn provides consulting services pertaining to biocompatibility evaluation with a focus on chemical characterization, study design, and execution, as well as supporting interactions with global regulatory agencies. And finally, our moderator today, who you've seen a time or two on RQM Plus Live in the past, is Nancy Morrison, Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation at RQM Plus. Nancy has RAC certifications for the US and EU. Uh, she's led our MDR and IVDR leadership councils and has over 30 years of experience in regulatory leadership and management roles. So with all those intros out of the way, Nancy, you are free to get us started. Thanks, Steve. I'm excited for this topic. I've had a few tense discussions with regulators over biocompatibility. Um, so this is a great topic, including one I had yesterday. So I'm just gonna jump right in with the questions because I think we have a lot of material to cover. And so maybe Jay, if you could talk about um, does biocompatibility testing or chemical characterization by itself mean your safety evaluation is complete? Ooh, well, yeah. Well, I promise you the answer to this question is not as complicated as the introduction to Joel or the work that he does in toxicology. But <laughs> anyway, jokes apart, um, you know, from my time as a reviewer, I've seen, I've seen this happen time and again. Uh, it, it typically tends to happen with the Small and medium enterprises, I'm, I'm not singling them out, but that's that's where I've seen the disconnect. Manufacturers are very used to doing the biological endpoint-based biocompatibility testing, and they'll say, look, I have a multiple geography strategy, and some geographies absolutely need all these tests, so I'm going to do it anyway. And since I've done all of that, I don't really need the chem characterization, or they do it the other way around. Yeah, last time you guys, the notified body, asked about chem characterization, so I'm going to do only that. I'm going to ditch the biological endpoint-based testing. And it doesn't really jive together into what is supposed to be a biological evaluation report or biological safety evaluation report. So there are a few concepts that I'd just like to clarify, especially for the uninitiated, before we get into the heavy hitting topics from uh, Jordi Labs, who are the absolute experts here. And, and, and to the audience, you know, in Kevin, Joel, and, and Taryn, we have some absolute gold dust here. I mean, 
we've got experience in a wide range of topics when it comes to chem characterization and biological safety evaluation. So feel free, free to um, fire away with your questions. First up, I'd like to start with the term material characterization. I know material characterization and the term chemical characterization get used interchangeably. But just from my experience in a regulator role, as well as from industry, I feel like material characterization is something that happens or should happen very early on upstream in the R&D phase, right? Say, for example, you're setting out to make a catheter and you, you're looking at silicone, PBACs, various durometers, nylon, and a whole host of materials. Uh, you're more interested in the physical properties of the material. Does it really work? Does it have the mechanical strength? Does it have the level of hydrophilicity slash hydrophobicity that you're looking for? Uh, does it crack easily? Does it have the fatigue properties you're looking for? Um, you're also trying to vet out your suppliers. So that's, to me, the very early stage, what is material characterization. And then you have what is more bio, what we know as biocompatibility. So traditional biocompatibility. And what's that all about, right? It's actually testing that uses a series of cell culture-based tests and animal model-based tests to actually evaluate the biological effects of compounds that are extracted from devices. We're very familiar with this, right? Enter ISO 10993 uh, from the 90s and the early 2000s and the corresponding FDA guidance document. We all know what biocompatibility testing is. But there is a new concept that's in vogue these days. Uh, it's a lot more sensitive, gives us a lot more information, and that's chemical characterization. Now, chem characterization is something that uses analytical chemistry to identify and quantify the amount of chemicals that are extracted from a device, yeah? and also evaluates the toxicological risks associated with the corresponding exposure levels of these extracts, so to speak, right? So you had material characterization that was more upfront, that looked at the device materials in isolation. Now you have chemical characterization that uses analytical chemistry techniques to the nth degree, so to speak, right? And it actually characterizes both the device materials and the term that we're going to hear a lot about today, ENL, extractables and leachables. It looks at device materials and extractables and leachables compounds derived from not only the device materials, but also the residuals from the manufacturing process. So essentially what this means is chemical characterization and the tox risk assessment, all of this together feeds into what is a biological risk assessment, right? And the outcomes of the biological risk assessment can be used to augment and effectively refine what will be your eventual biological endpoint-based biocompatibility testing. So this process in entirety is what we refer to as the biological evaluation. So to put it in simple terms, a clinical investigation report in itself does not suffice as the clinical evaluation report, right? Just the same way a suite of biocompatibility test reports put together does not mean you have a biological safety evaluation report. You've got a lot of different things that need to fall into place, funnel into a risk assessment, risk assessment that then dictate what further testing that you need to do. And a culmination of all of this is what is biological evaluation. Now, let me tell you one last thing, right? In some cases, an effective biological safety evaluation that is done properly can actually provide both cost and time efficiencies and potentially even eliminate the need for certain biological endpoint-based biocompatibility testing. So now that I've said everything that everybody knows, we can get into the more important topics, Nancy. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. That's great background, right? And it really reinforces, right? Proper planning, proper evaluation sets you down on the right path um, to get going. It, but maybe I was wondering, kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the things that have changed and how we ended up where we are. So maybe Joel, do you want to take a stab at that? Sure. Uh, thanks, Nancy. Um, I think it's really important to sort of set the stage for this discussion to appreciate that the, the current landscape for doing this type of chemical characterization and toxicological risk assessment is vastly different from where things were five years ago, 10 years ago. And there's a, a lot of reasons for that. Um, there's regulatory changes and developments in the EU, particularly the MDR, um, now requires a qualified toxicologist to be doing the toxicological risk assessment, whereas before maybe you had an engineer doing that work or someone without an extensive uh, education or professional background in the area of toxicology. So this emphasis on qualified, trained toxicolo 
toxicology professionals working with these analytical chemists for the purposes of, of this risk assessment is now stipulated in the regulation for any submission to the EU. Um, in addition, there's a lot of change. There have been a lot of developments in the the standards that set the framework for how to do this work. Um, the actual ISO international standard, the ISO standard for how to risk assess extractable compounds, was published back in 2002. It's over 20 years old, and a lot has changed in the world of toxicology and medical device safety over those past 20 years. So, in practice, there have been a lot of advancements, and there is an expected update to that standard to be released later this year. We'll get into that later in this talk. But just to get at the point that a lot of the, the standards that were set for how to do this work have evolved over time. Um, some major developments that have, have sort of come up since that 2002 publication include um, approaches for applying what are referred to as thresholds of toxicological concern, which are basically allow exposure levels that are considered safe for any chemical um, as long as they are below this very low, low level. And, and these levels are protective of some of the, the key, like big picture endpoints, like carcinogenicity and mutagenic carcinogens. And, and there is actually an internationally harmonized guidance, the ICHM7 guidance that was published in 2014 that established this, uh, these types of threshold of toxicological concern approaches as being appropriate for pharmaceutical contexts and later is adopted for medical device contexts as well. Um, and then more recently, um, there's an ISO guidance on applying different types of non-cancer thresholds of toxicological concern risk assessment approaches, um, this ISO technical standard uh, 21726, that, that provides more uh, nuanced and ad advanced tools for risk assessing what are becoming increasingly large and complex extractables profiles from these devices. And that's just on the toxicological risk assessment side of things. When it comes to chemistry, there's a whole host of other issues that have, have certainly been changing. And I'll, with that, I'll hand it over to, uh, to Kevin Rowland or, or Taryn to talk a little bit about, about those things. Yeah, Joel, we're, we're definitely luckier on the um, analytical side um, and testing for extractables and leachables in that those ISO documents um, that pertain to that testing have been updated more recently. Um, but for those who haven't seen those documents um, and hadn't seen them before, you'll notice some new terms that, that may have not been there 10 years ago, particularly things like analytical evaluation threshold um, and uncertainty factor, which both relate to the sensitivity levels that we need to get to for testing of chemicals that may be extracted from a device. So, you know, those terms, um, relate to how we set up our testing and and are really important that you get those those factors right in testing um, because regulators are really looking for proper application of of those um, of those to the methods that are used and i think just one other thing that i would add on the chemistry side is that and we've seen that evolve over the last several years even in an extreme case could you speak up a little Taryn we're having a little trouble hearing you <laughs> you know we've really we've really seen a, a seismic shift I would say in the last couple of years if we look back to even 2017 there were hardly any expectations in writing for chemical characterization studies it would be a very short list and as the years have evolved, we've seen that list grow extremely long, both in terms of, kind of written, formalized expectations for chemical characterization, as well as the unwritten, ever-evolving expectations from regulatory agencies. So this is a very kind of rapidly shifting landscape that we're in, um, kind of a landscape in which I think managing uncertainty has become sort of the key characteristic. I think. You know, that, that's really the summary of where we are at the moment. That's a good summary. And I think uh, we're starting to get some audience questions. So I'm going to kick it back to that. And I think this one probably came up, Jay, in, in terms of talking about your suppliers and things like that. But what's the best strategy to deal with multiple suppliers while performing biological evaluation of the medical device? Ooh. This is this is a long conversation, um, and and very often there are multiple suppliers, right? So 
this really depends on what you find in your initial material characterization, right? Um, if, if there is a certain degree of chem characterization associated with the same, if you have materials or suppliers coming in from different geographies, that can be challenging. What I would suggest is to go with your worst case in terms of your final device design, as well as choice of materials from a particular supplier. If you know that, you know, say for example, um, well, the end degree here, and Jordy folks, let me let me know what you think about this too. Say for example, you have um, a certain polymer that has a distinctly different um, ENL profile, right? Where maybe you have a, a much higher degree of unknowns from a supplier from a certain geography, uh, relative to somebody from another geography, would you advise that we go with what is the worst case scenario so that it's an easy justification? Yes, definitely. Really, in all choices, we try to choose um, what is expected to be the worst case. So that mm -hmm. can relate to, um, you know, both material and just geometry. There's often changes in devices that involve larger sizes and things like that so our testing is always focused on a worst case so that we can pass that information to toxicology so effectively for this manufacturer right you probably can't wait to do chem characterization once you have everything finalized and once you're getting into that bnb phase right if you have multiple suppliers and if you must persist with each one of those multiple suppliers then maybe a certain degree of work is required upfront to be able to identify what is the worst case ENL profile when it comes to these multiple suppliers and then go from there on? I hope that yeah. that's I, I think the challenge here is that the expectation of regulators, particularly the US FDA, is that in this instance, what worst case means is that one material is a complete subset of the other material. Mm -hmm. That's the only instance in which I've seen them accept a worst case justification for testing only one set of alternate materials from different suppliers. Mm -hmm. If it's not the case that you have a complete subset, meaning you get different reachables out of one material compared to the other material, even if one has a much longer list, mm -hmm. if the other, if the one, the shorter list has different you know, leachables that aren't seen in the first material, That's, yeah. they still want to see testing on both. Absolutely. Um, be really burdensome and understand that. probably reason for careful consideration about whether alternate suppliers are really necessary. But that's what I've seen, particularly in the US, testing required on both most of the most in most cases. Darren, thanks for that clarification because the inherent assumption in the comment that I initially made in terms of worst case was that it is the subset, but I hadn't spelled it out. Thank you so much. Um, one more item from an EU standpoint. And very recently, we were in talks with BSI. They had a consultant's day, consultant's day where they were talking about, please tell your manufacturers or your clients not to do this, or please tell them to do this. There was one question that came up, and it was, what if our supplier refuses to give us certain information on these materials? The answer was simple at that point, find a different supplier. Because I know it's it seems... It seems very rude and you know very abrupt to say it that way, but really that would <laughs> save you a lot of heartache when it comes to your final submission, which anyway is taking about 18 months to get done with review. And this will be a showstopper item come round three. So something to bear in mind. Just wanted to throw that out there because it's fresh on my mind. Yeah, great discussion. And and definitely <laughs> shows the confliction between I don't want device shortages, so I need multiple suppliers. <laughs> and and, oh my god right yeah. business continuity i right but there are costs and you know downsides to that approach as well okay so this is a rather long question so i'm going to read it um if you have a medical device that is in long-term skin contact so intact skin device mm -hmm. the chemical characterization is not useful as the derm tox data is less available and that these types of devices fall a little outside of the regulatory developments on chemical characterization. For clinical evaluation, I understand that chemical characterizations are necessary if you evaluate sameness of the medical devices. So this kind of crosses over, right, equivalence and the sameness of these document, these devices. However, if you have two materials that are evaluated to be biological safe, according to 10993, mm. 
<laughs> can you use that safety as an argument that you are not increasing the risk of medical device without doing chemical characterization? <laughs> Where is this going to, EU or the US? Uh, Taryn's already shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do both, just for the sake of argument, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd say absolutely no for EU. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and Taryn, you're going to say no for the US? <laughs> Yeah, partly because this idea of materials being deemed biologically safe, agnostic of a clinical application, has really kind of faded out of use over the last few years. That used to be the paradigm, right? You have test a material according to the standard panel of tests, you deem it safe, you're off to the races. But the focus these days is really on the specific application of that material in conjunction with all of the other materials that it will be used with in the final medical device. You know, so just because a material is safe on its own in some particular application does not mean that when you put it together with some other materials, you're not going to have a potential toxicity problem. And so we have seen very strong FDA pushback on this idea that you can plug and play different puzzle pieces of materials that have been deemed biologically safe. They just really have moved far away from that paradigm. Okay. Yeah, and if I may add, Taryn, I think that uh, while there is appreciated that there is sort of safety testing on the materials, you're using medical grade materials trying to be safe, definitely puts you in a stronger position but ultimately the emphasis has been on establishing the final finished device to be safe. Um, it's not just material, material compatibility, but also manufacturing processes, cleaning processes. Maybe you have some residual surfactants remaining on the surface of your skin contact device that could lead to skin irritation. So it's not the material per se, but a, a material that contacts your device through the manufacturing process that's left in high residue levels. So that's why it's really critical to have established safety documentation on the final finished device to account for all of the, not just the materials of construction, but what are referred to as contact materials through that process. Good point. Okay, so here's another one. This one is specifically looking for a US FDA point of view. Um, can chemical characterization be used to justify not testing additional biological endpoints? Yes, if the biological endpoints of interest are systemic endpoints. So the distinction that's laid out in the standards is that Biological endpoints, which are localized in effect, so things like cytotoxicity, irritation, hemolysis, those things have to be addressed through some kind of biological test, whether that's a new test or you know something that you can leverage from a predicate device. Um, systemic endpoints, which are those which act systemically on the body, so systemic toxicity, of course, genotoxicity, carcinogenicity, those endpoints can be addressed through chemical characterization without needing a biological test. Um, sensitization is kind of hanging out in the middle. Joel, you can probably add some commentary on sensitization if you'd like to, but this is the one which has both a localized and a systemic component to it. And so the area is still evolving in terms of whether that can be addressed through some combination of chemical characterization and risk assessment and perhaps in vitro biological tests. Um, Joel, do you want to add anything on this topic? Right. Uh, I, I would say with the FDA, I, I don't believe FDA is really considering uh, risk assessment of extractables profiles for that endpoint. In the EU, it, there may be sort of more uh, willingness to review that data. Um, I guess there is a sort of robust uh, validated framework for risk assessing the sensitization endpoint that was developed by the fragrance industry. Uh, it's been adopted by the WHO. So from a, a human health risk assessment standpoint, there are methods and frameworks for doing that quantitative risk assessment. Um, however, in, in the medical advice community, there's there's been, there, I th there may be more uh, work to be done to validate those methods for medical devices specifically. Um, uh, there, there's a lot happening in the peer-reviewed literature, developing tools to sort of ha hazard ID chemicals that you may see in an extractables profile. And if you have no sensitizers that were detected, if there's an absence of hazard, then you're not, you, know, you don't need to do a risk assessment. And that may be uh, something you can present to regulators. If you simply say none of the chemicals coming off of our device are, are known to be sensitizing, um, that could be one approach. But, but again, I think that there's a higher regulatory risk with that approach based on recent experience with the FDA particularly. 
Yeah, and then pyrogenicity is the other one that's sort of in the gray zone, um, not strictly a localized endpoint, but there isn't a very well-established mechanism for assessing pyrogenicity through chemistry data alone, um, although there is also work being done in this space to identify pathways for that and potentially to identify in vitro alternatives to the current rabbit test. Um, so this one's evolving, but at the moment, particularly in the US, it does require a biological test. You know, in the EU, I've seen instances where chem characterization has been able to almost entirely support a certain device and it's it's in the realm of very specific design changes right design changes to very specific parts of your device that's where you can almost entirely use chem characterization to say that look we we've the residual risk hasn't really changed uh, relative to prior to this change and we don't really need any additional biological endpoint based testing if it's a brand new device i think you're really going to struggle i've seen I've seen at least two instances um, where an expert toxicologist actually extrapolated irritation and sensitization threshold from toxicological data. I will still warn along the lines of what has already been said that it is a high risk approach to rely only on chem characterization. Um, and that if you, if you really want a low risk approach <laughs> with irritation sensitization, I'd say go with, go with some biological testing maybe even some strong rationale in there. Uh, so it depends on your risk tolerance when it comes to your submission. And one last thing to add here is I think one of the great powers of this process, the extractables, leachables, and tox risk assessment approach is it it obviates the need for a cancer studies, particularly for non-genotoxic carcinogens, for which the only available models would be a lifetime rodent assay. It's a two-year assay just to collect the data. So these are really expensive. They require a lot of animals. They take a really long time. Um, it's in if extractables and leachables risk assessment can show that there's no risk to patients of non-genotoxic carcinogenicity that saves a lot of of, of all those things of, of animals money and time so it's a really powerful tool now we're sort of the toxicology community sort of appreciates that you can't always rule that hazard out you can't always rule out non-genotoxic carcinogenicity from available certain data sets um, and there's a lot of work to kind of develop um, alternative test methods to address that endpoint, shorter term studies, a 90 day study in rodents. But a lot of that work has not been fully approved or validated. But we appreciate that that's a great need because of the sort of between the stuck between a rock and a hard place where you have a, a complicated extractables right. data set that can't rule out that concern. Or you have, and the only option is to do a two year rodent study. It's, it's, it's not a great position to be in. And, and we're hoping to get past that in the coming in the near future it's great information so we have another question specifically hey, hey, Nancy, on extractable. Nancy yeah. I got a question for Joel just to follow up Joel how many instances of the same have you seen where you know the manufacturer really had to go in for that two-year assay and, and did they almost always have to do it or you know how many instances have you seen uh, personally I have not seen that but colleagues of mine are currently in battles with the oh. with regulators on what will be required so it, it really it, it does happen and, and it's i think okay. it's by nature of the, the chemical characterization work right now the identifying chemicals that have no data available on them no toxicity mm -hmm. data makes it really challenging to rule out this hazard if there's um, any indication of a potential for this to, to occur. And I, I can get more into the weeds on that if you're interested, but in practice, it does happen, uh, Jai, and puts medical device companies in a really tough position. So, so this is definitely a case for a lot of due diligence upfront, right? When you're, when you're doing your initial R&D work, be really careful why and how you select certain materials because you could be left with this kind of situation, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. thanks, Joel. Will there be a move away from extractables? And in parentheses, they have hexane is not a clinically relevant extractant and more emphasis on legibles. Also, a move away from exaggerated extraction to exhaustive. I see I lots of smiles. One. Somebody <laughs> wants to jump this one. <laughs> I'm sure everyone on, oh. on this group has an opinion about it. So. I think this may differ according to region, geographical region, um, but let's perhaps start with the US since the US tends to drive some of the thinking on these topics. Um, 
for certain device types, a case can be made for simulated use testing or leachables for short, um, as opposed to exaggerated or exhaustive extraction. These devices tend to be those which are externally communicating um, or lower risk mm-hmm. in terms of their clinical use. Mm-hmm. Um, devices which are implantable are almost never going to be able to get out of an exaggerated or usually an exhaustive extraction study. Um, and I don't foresee this changing in the near future. Um, it's very difficult to evaluate you know, the lifetime leachables of an implanted device without pushing it through you know, some sort of harsher or more exaggerated condition in the lab initially, unless you want to begin for a really, really long-term study before you can qualify your device. So I think that the paradigm around implantable devices is not going to shift too much in the near future. However, there is some movement towards um, simulated use studies being justifiable for other device categories. And I think that the, the more thought that can be put into chemical characterization study design up front to avoid doing unnecessarily exaggerated studies, the better for the industry. Um, if everybody just defaults to the most conservative conditions all the time, it's it's very burdensome for those who don't really need it and kind of reinforces this idea that it's always necessary when in reality it's really not. Um, so I think that we're, we're not getting away from exhaustive extractions for certain device categories anytime in the foreseeable future, but for some other devices, we may get there. Um, there are instances where regulatory agencies, the FDA being perhaps the most conservative on this particular topic, will accept studies that don't include hexane, for example, or non-polar solvent, Um, but those do have to be based on a justification that is related to the clinical use of the device and why a strongly non-polar condition isn't relevant to that device condition. Yeah, completely agree, Taryn, and I think just in terms of the of the solvents used, um, there are definitely cases where um, a reasonable justification can be made for avoiding a certain condition, but there are also, um, for those where that justification can't be made, particularly the implantables that you mentioned, um, you can get into a very difficult situation where um, the guidance provides um, that you shouldn't be exposing your device to a condition that degrades it. Um, and in, in, in many cases, especially with hexane and devices made of things like silicone or other similar materials, um, you get into this position where um, degradation occurs with that solvent, but you still need to apply a similar condition. Um, and just the analytical chemistry of that means that it's very difficult to find um, a place to be uh, and, and to find a solvent that is not degrading the device, but is also providing the 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 information about those nonpolar extractables. So there is some challenge there, and it needs to be carefully thought through, um, particularly in studies that that we do here. Um, we we engage a, a kind of suite of solvents at the beginning of testing. Um, we refer to that as as feasibility testing, but essentially we're trying out all of the conditions that that might be required to make sure that um, during that that extraction that we're not going to run into any of these issues and, and we're looking to sort that out all up front um, so that there are no surprises during the final study or even worse no surprises um, when the regulators are looking at the data package. Yeah and perhaps one other thing that we should add on this is that the FDA is moving a little bit towards the idea of kinetic release studies for long-term implantable devices So this does not replace an exhaustive extraction study, Mm. but can be considered in addition, sort of as the simulated use paradigm, because the problem is, how do you simulate exposure to the human body over a lifetime in a way that is analytically amenable and doesn't take, you know, 10 years to execute? Um, And so the FDA has been starting to recommend this kinetic release paradigm whereby you extract the device multiple times over 30 days or perhaps 60 days or perhaps even up to 180 days. We've seen that request once um, and kind of do repeated 
extractions in more clinically relevant solvents and conditions and kind of look at the trend over time. So if your extractable profile is consistently decreasing and you're not seeing new things, then this is an indication that the initial time point of evaluating your device really was the worst case and you're not going to see anything that's mm. worse coming out over, you know, over the, the use life of the product. Um, so I think this is probably where leachable studies are going to go for implantable devices or you know, those with long-term exposure that right now really rely solely on exhaustive extraction data. Switch to a gas pathway question. Um, so talking about a different, is it possible to emit parts of the test sample that do not come in contact with the patient or caregiver, assume transitory contact from chemical characterization and other assays and endpoints? So this gets into sample prep and how do you decide which portions of the device to include? Yeah, definitely. I think establishing patient contacting versus non-patient contacting surfaces with a gas pathway device, there's maybe it's not contacting the patient, but it's contacting the gas pathway itself. So it could be within the gas path. If there's like a humidified air component to this, it could be within the water path that then could be vaporized and introduced to the gas path. So kind of having a clear understanding of all the materials of your device, whether they're in contact with the patient, the gas pathway, or potentially a, a water pathway, all of those should certainly inform the study design. Okay. Uh, yes, if there's something that is truly non-contacting and is physically possible to omit from the extraction, yes, absolutely, you should omit it. You should leave it out. <laughs> we're, we're not trying to evaluate things that truly do not have the potential to cause any patient risk. And then maybe just jumping back to a comment that Jay made earlier about worst case, there are some situations where um, it may be uh, better to assume the worst case if, if there's some question. I think that, that has come up often where something may have limited or very little or unlikely contact, but based on the chemistry of that material, it could be an advantage just to include it and, and propose it as the worst case. Got it. Makes sense. Okay. Um, can you elaborate on the chem characterization versus biological endpoint testing discussion for platform devices? For example, a drug delivery device, when the combination product intended use falls within the intended use of the device constituent. So we've got a combination product, drug delivery. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I'm not sure I get that question 100%. So it's a combination product. What yeah, about but it's it? It's a platform. So there's multiples, right? So think about mm -hmm. it as, right? How can I do, handle that whole platform of devices, not just an individual? Is there anything to bridge or to matrix or, right? Potential well, exposure. Well, critical, with all combination devices, establishing compatibility between the drug and the device is really important, material compatibility. And if you're using this platform device for multiple drugs, that's a really important piece of, of establishing that, that it's gonna, this device is going to function and not uh, degrade or, or release harmful chemicals into the, into the patient. So, but in terms of platform for that's what, that's what I'm assuming is, is meant there, where you're using different types of drugs in the delivery system? Yeah, that's how, that's how I would interpret that platform. And then thinking about, right, now I have to do my biocompatibility or my chemical characterization. Do I need to go for endpoints? Can I use chemical characterization with those different drugs, potentially? I think the thought process would be the same. It's not any different from another device. If, if there is, going back to that subset comment that Taryn made earlier, so that's one consideration. Is there a justification for worst case that can be made? But if they're all very distinctly different, I'm not sure how you can call one case representative of every one of those situations. And and again, you know, this would really come, come down to your risk assessment with every one of those constituent drugs. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to shirk. No, go ahead, Joel. 
Oh, I was going to say well, one benefit in the combination device or category is that it's much easier to justify a leachable study as being representative because you know that the device is in contact with the drug formulation. So this is actually what is going to be delivered to the patient. So a leachable study, which is oftentimes significantly easier to risk assess um, because it's more physiologically relevant conditions. You see much lower numbers of extractable compounds from the device at lower levels. Um, from that perspective, a, a leachable study is really uh, like a powerful tool, which is distinct from justifying and, and designing a, a simulated use study for a medical device. And maybe a Taryn or Kevin, you can talk a little bit about some of the challenges there if, or at a later time, but that's something that comes to mind uh, from, from my perspective. Yeah, definitely, Joel, the other side of that um, should involve a, a conversation with your friendly analytical chemist if you choose to do um, a leachable study with a complex drug product. Um, those can be very, very challenging and need to be thought through carefully. Um, so depending on the, on the formulation of that drug product, it may, be, um, it may not be analytically feasible to perform the assessment of those leachables in that matrix. So in some cases, we may need to come up with this, uh, a surrogate extractable condition that, that can mimic that drug product and justify it appropriately. Hey, Joel, a question for you, just, just so that I'm clear. Are you saying that only a leachable study is needed for a drug device combination product? Uh, I would not say that, but okay, I, okay. I, a lot of the problems come from trying to risk assess exhaustive or exaggerated okay. uh, extraction for data. Extractables, okay. So okay. having that leachables data is a powerful tool. Got it, got it. I just wanted to be clear, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. But Jay, I would say that there are instances, depending on the type of drug device combination product, where mm -hmm. sort of a hybrid extractable slash leachable study can be sufficient. So if this okay. is something externally communicating again, so not like an implanted drug-awaiting stent, for example, mm -hmm. that is not going to fly. But if you have something that's external to the body, it can be the case that you know, not a fully traditional extractable study is needed, but that you do a simulated use study, which exaggerates one parameter, maybe temperature, but uses a clinically relevant solvent and duration of extraction, something like that. So we can get into the space where we can develop hybrid study designs in those instances. Makes sense. Points back to your risk assessment and the conversation with your analytical chemist, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, more of a general question, so out of the product specific, but what do you typically see from regulators in the EU versus in the US? Mm. So I'll, I'll take a start at this one and then Joel, I think you can comment on the, the text piece as well with that for you. Um, we see many similarities, but some key differences, I think perhaps the differences are the ones worth talking about a little bit more. Um, the hottest topic across both, though, to begin with, it by far is the AET, the analytical evaluation threshold, which Kevin mentioned earlier as the toxicologically relevant threshold above which you need to identify and quantify chemicals that you detect in an extractable or leachable study. Um, it sounds simple conceptually, but in reality, the application of the AET into a study is extremely complicated and has been the subject of very rapidly evolving thinking in regulatory agencies, particularly in the FDA. This is, this is certainly one of the hot topics. I think exhaustive extraction is perhaps one of the others that is in common between the regions. You know, both the FDA and the EU notified bodies are probing at exhaustive extraction criteria and particularly the cases where it's not straightforward, you know, perhaps when you're below the limit of sensitivity of the gravimetric balance, how you handle determination at the exhaustive endpoint. So that, you know, that are sort of both probing that in similar ways. Um, I think the biggest difference between the two regions is perhaps we can bracket it under trust. <laughs> The, the EU notified bodies are generally more content to believe that the lab has appropriately qualified their methods, particularly if their lab is accredited to ISO 17025 or something analogous. Um, 
whereas the FDA likes to independently verify every detail of a chemical characterization study for themselves. They're far less interested in lab accreditations or certifications. So this is one of the major differences that we have been encountering um, between them. But, and this can play out in a very relevant way, depending whether you do testing in a lab in the US or a lab in the EU, because for example, a lab in the US might not have those accreditations, and a lab in the EU might not provide all of the detail that the FDA typically expects to see and might not be willing to provide it if they consider it proprietary to their methods. We, we saw one case recently where a lab in the EU declined to provide the, the details that the FDA was asking for, and we're still waiting for a decision on that submission, but I don't think that there's a path forward. Um, so, so this can be you know, a really challenging difference between the regions. Um, I would say, you know, the other one or two other points maybe that are different between them, the EU has, from what I've seen, a bigger focus on shelf life testing and use life, particularly for reusable devices. They are, they're asking a lot more questions about you know, having biocompatibility or chemical characterization data for the full use life of a product. And I think the FDA is only just starting to get into asking questions in this space, with the exception of a few device categories that have vertical guidances that require it um, or recommend it. And then the FDA conversely has been asking a lot of questions about spiking studies to verify sample preparation processes, which is not something we see a lot of coming from the EU. So, but those are, a few differences. Joel, do you want to speak a little bit to the talks piece? Sure. Thanks, Taryn. There's just two points that I'd like to raise. I think we alluded to this earlier, is that in the EU, they are more willing to, to accept or consider risk assessment for irritation and sensitization endpoints on extractables data. Um, and, and that's a big deal because that, that could mean that you'd no longer have to wait for a guinea pig maximization test on your device. You could just have a chemical study and a risk assessment to show that there's going to be that the, there's going to be no concerns for sensitization uh, or irritation. Um, and then secondly, there the EU seems to be more willing to consider in vitro mutagenicity testing on the devices as done per the ISO standard to justify a lack of mutagenicity concern in the extractables data set. And that's a really big deal when you get an, a large extractables data set with chemicals that are kind of at low levels, but above these highly conservative thresholds of toxicological concern, where if you can't rule out mutagenicity for, for the chemical that was identified, you have to apply these ICHM7 very, very low uh, thresholds. So for example, for a permanent contact device, a potential mutagenic extractable compound would have to be below 1.5 micrograms per device to, to have a margin of safety greater than one. So these are very, very low thresholds. If you have negative genotoxicity testing results on your device, the EU would be willing to consider that in justifying a higher acceptable threshold for, you, for these compounds. So it, it makes a really big difference in risk assessing um, these large complex profiles of chemicals that are at low levels, but above that 1.5 microgram per device threshold. Whereas in the US, uh, they do not consider the in vitro genotoxicity testing to support a, a lack of mutagenicity concern um, if the extractables profile suggests you have a mutagenic compound there. Great, great information, thank you. Um, Got a couple more product-specific questions. The next one is around nanomaterials. Um, so definitely a challenge. Um, if using a nanomaterial in a medical device, some in vitro testing can show negative results due to unadequate protocols. For instance, cytotoxicity, how can we solve this? And kind of following on on that, what are the extra testing you would expect to see regarding a nanomaterial relative to the same material when it is not? nano-sized. I'd like to first distinguish a device that has sort of intentionally nano-structured components where there will be a known quantity of nano-particulates that the patient's in contact with versus like wear debris, a device that degrades and releases nano-sized particulates. Um, because that's a really important distinction. I mean, the exposure levels are going to be very different intentionally introducing nanomaterials to the patient versus sort of over the, the lifetime use of the device, you may see some amount of, of nanostructured 
particles that are perhaps not uniform in their size and size distribution or other characteristics. That's very different from a sort of intentionally engineered nanostructure that's part of the, how the device functions. So that's important to sort of differentiate here. Um, in terms of cytotoxicity testing, not being able to uh, be sensitive enough to, uh, to derive a signal for, for uh, nanomaterials, I haven't run into that personally, but am aware of the fact that in vitro cytotoxicity assays involve sort of placing a dispersion of nanoparticles over a bed of cells at the bottom of a well, and nanoparticles don't fall. Uh, the rate that they fall is not based on gravity, it's based on diffusion. These particles are so small that they're moving via Brownian motion in multi-directions, and you may not have enough material coming in contact with the cell to truly measure what the interaction is between the particles in the cell over the course of that assay. So considering these, what are referred to as dosimetry sort of concerns, like are you delivering enough of your material to the cell to adequately show if the cell is, is having a toxic response or not? That's one way to sort of address that, that data gap there that I'm aware of. Thank you, very helpful. Um, the next question is, what is your advice for a biocompatibility testing program for disinfectants used on medical devices such as an ultrasound disinfectant. Where do disinfectant we start? Yeah. <laughs> this 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 really is a is a bigger conversation. I I'd be willing to get in touch with this person one on one to have a chat about it because there is there's so many items that you need to consider, and this is not going to be the first time either. But again, the whole concept about direct versus indirect contact needs to be taken into account. One and you know you you launch from there on. I don't have a I don't have a one sentence answer. Taryn, do you? Not exactly, but I will say that if you are already intending to perform full chemical characterization on your device, any disinfectants which are used in that process in the manufacturing process would automatically be evaluated through that chemical characterization process. So you can to an extent, black box it in that way. Um, it does not mean that you shouldn't do a disinfection validation study. And the nature of that study will depend on the disinfectants themselves. You know, sometimes you can do this in a really straightforward way through just you know, validating your um, cleaning and you know, residual disinfection disinfectants through something like a total organic carbon test, if that's relevant. Um, it, you know, qualitative or low quantitation approaches like that can work as, as a validation method. But ultimately, if you're looking for sort of an in-depth toxicity assessment, that should be captured anyway through your calculation study and any other biological testing that you're doing. Thank you. But yeah, I agree, Jay. There's a lot to say yeah. in details. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, especially say, for example, if it's going into the EU, I've seen something like this for a for a hemodialyzer disinfectant uh, solution. And they were pursuing Article 6110, and it really came down to the biological safety evaluation very, very strongly. So I'm glad you're thinking along these lines, but uh, this can be quite nuanced. And getting the strategy absolutely right is important on this one because you may just find that your submission is really hinging on this particular aspect of things. Yeah, I think where it gets the most complicated is where you have a reusable device, which is repeatedly disinfected. Oh, yeah. um, if you have a single use device that just undergoes some disinfection process during manufacturing, it's not too difficult to validate and capture that in, the, in your initial chemical characterization study. But if you have a device which is repeatedly disinfected during clinical use or in between clinical uses, there is an expectation that you verify the effects of, firstly, whether the disinfectant agent has been successfully removed from the device following the disinfection process, and secondly, the effect of the, that process on the materials in sort of a cumulative manner. Um, I've seen this particularly requested in the EU, but also once in the US in the context of hemodialysis devices, um, where it, you can wind up in a very long and burdensome study where you're having to simulate repeated disinfections and do multiple extractables or simulated use studies of your device to verify that it's not changing as a result of contact with 
with disinfectants or through the parameters of the disinfection process. So that that is a very kind of custom situation, which I think needs some careful attention. And yeah, if this person wants to is in that position and wants to talk to us offline, we can certainly have that conversation. That's great. We're nearing the top of the hour, so I'm just going to have one more question. And Kevin, I'll, I'll ask you to start this one. Um, in setting up a study, what are some of the items or technicalities that could easily trip you up? <laughs> yeah, there, there are certainly a lot of them. And some careful consideration needs to go in at the start of any study, really. Um, Karen and I both mentioned analytical evaluation threshold, and, and its application is very important. But also important to that is ensuring that all of your methodologies are capable of reaching that concentration. Um, maybe to oversimplify it a little bit, that AET can be distilled down into an instrumental concentration, and all methods that are applied need to be confirmed to be sensitive enough to reach that condition. Um, that is something that certainly wasn't the case um, several years ago, and, and regulators are very keen on the fact that um, our methods need to be sensitive enough to see the things that are important to see. So um, that is probably the biggest thing. And, you know, as Taryn mentioned, its application in the laboratory is, is quite complicated. And that all comes from the fact that different chemicals have a different response on a particular instrumental method. Um, so you can't just take one chemical and say, okay, well, that one works. Um, my method is sensitive enough for whatever chemical you choose. You really need to carefully consider the range of chemicals that you may see um, and apply that method appropriately. And, you know, obviously anybody that has more questions about that, we have some publications that we can provide and, and happy to talk to anybody. There's, um, we could probably go on and on for two hours about just that <laughs> one topic. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the next thing that could easily trip people up is the uncertainty factor. And this is sort of very new. Um, it's included in the newest revision of Part 18 of the 10993 documentation. Um, the uncertainty factor, again, is relating to how chemicals have a different response on, on a particular method. And so the thinking there is that we're adjusting down the thresholding to account for that so that we make sure that weakly responding compounds are appropriately detected and evaluated. So um, in starting a study, you need to really make sure that the laboratory is setting up a the uncertainty factor in the proper way. Um, and there's some guidance in part 18 for how to do that, um, but there are some, some challenges to performing that properly. So um, there's there's a lot of complexity there again, but it's 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 absolutely essential that a study at this point includes an uncertainty factor and that those thresholds are adjusted and that needs to be done in an appropriate way. Um, I think that I'll, I'll hit on one one more. Um, there are certainly plenty more that that could that we could talk about, um, but um, on, on sort of a different note, um, there, there are really no analytical methods that are capable of definitively assigning the, the identity of a particular chemical, certainly not at the concentration levels that we need to reach. Uh, Joel earlier mentioned 1.5 microgram per device. Uh, when we translate that into terms of um, the extracts that we'll be looking at, we're, we're dealing with parts per billion concentration levels on instruments, and um, there's no way to definitively identify compounds with today's technology. So. The result of that is that we need to uh, assign a, um, a confidence level to each of the identifications that's made. It's very, very important that we have the highest confidence that we can in those identifications, but equally as important is to provide information with those identifications as to how confident we can be based on the data that's available. Um, regulators certainly would like those to be very, very high. Um, in some cases, it's it's not possible with the technology that's involved. But all all good studies really should include a, a thorough assessment of each identification that's made and the confidence that's associated to that identification. So that's just three things. There's probably 20 more that we could list off, um, but I think those are are three of the most important. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you to our, our panelists and to all the participation. We had a ton of questions. Um, 
that we were not able to get to, but I'm going to toss it back to Steve and let him wrap up. Thanks, Nancy. Uh, we appreciate everyone joining us today. Thank you very much. We'll follow up via email with the recording of today's panel by tomorrow, and we'll also upload this episode to our Device Advice podcast no later than early next week. Uh, if you have not subscribed to our podcast yet, we certainly encourage you to do that. Uh, we've begun to publish more content there than just our RQM Plus live shows. So to find us, just search RQM Plus device advice on your platform of choice and we should show up. As far as what's next, we aren't quite ready uh, as we usually would be to announce next month's RQM Plus live show right now. Uh, there's a reason for that. If you visit our website next week, you'll get an idea as to why we're holding off at the moment. But we can tell you that it's going to be on Thursday, March 23rd. And it's going to be called How AI is Revolutionizing MedTech, Current and Future Applications. So it probably goes without saying, but we're super excited to dive headfirst into that one. And it's quite applicable to many different roles as well. So when it's announced, you'll be able to find that in the Knowledge Center at rqmplus.com. Uh, you will also be able to find that on our LinkedIn page. So if you spend any time on LinkedIn, we hope you'll follow us there. We regularly share most of the content we have in our Knowledge Center, along with career opportunities, commentary on industry news, and more. Uh, in addition to publishing to our podcast, LinkedIn is where we host our MedTech Voices series, um, which are always videos of 10 minutes or less. So I've shared a link to our LinkedIn page in the chat. You can also find us by searching RQM Plus on LinkedIn. Also related to LinkedIn, last thing, please feel free to connect with any of the panelists today. Uh, I shared their profile links earlier in the webinar chat, or you could search their names as well, which should, they should show up. So that's it for today's show. Thank you again for being here, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you.